Destiny City, a community of believers committed to helping others find and fulfill their God-given destiny. My dad was a, he was a, he was a hard-working man, a country boy, y'all would have loved him, you really would. Every time I'm in Rowan County, I think of my dad. I meet so many men here and hear so much talk about the things that are important to so many folks. And you would have loved my dad. He, he was always the first man out of bed. He was the last one to leave the job. He was humble. He was hardworking. He would give you two days work for half a day's price. Uh, he didn't grow gardens. He grew truck patches and called them gardens just so that he could harvest all the vegetables and give them away. He had a green thumb. Grow anything. His watermelons were the biggest in the county. His tomatoes were like this, you know. His cabbages. Uh, and uh, he, and he, he gardened barefooted all the time. And we let his toenails grow out, look like an eagle, you know. And he'd have dirt packed on him. Uh, when I was five years old, I was working in the workshop behind his house, and that's where my story began. If you pick up my book out there, Masquerade, which they're making into a movie, and uh, just finished, uh, we're working on a documentary also, and uh, uh, it details my life's journey from the time what I'm about to tell you, just initiated it, and then I'm going to move on this morning through some details of my story, but uh, you need to know where it began. At five years old, uh, my dad had a workshop out behind his house there in Hazel Green, Alabama, rural North Alabama. Uh, at that time, back in the late 50s, when I was five years old, there were not many houses around. My grandfather lived across the gravel road on an 80-acre cotton farm. That's where my dad had grown up. He and my uncle had built little frame houses right across the gravel road, and it's where I grew up. We moved there when I was four, and at five years old, I was sitting out in that workshop on a Saturday afternoon. It was hot, humid Alabama weather, and uh, I changed nationalities. Brother, you and I, they couldn't tell us apart in, uh, in the summer. Uh, as a matter of fact, I might zip right on past you. And uh, it's a matter of fact, many of my Af- African-American friends when I was growing up, they would go, what nationality are you? I said, I'm white. You ain't white. I don't know what you are. One man that uh, led you, uh, he was an older fella, he asked me that, and I said, I'm white. And he said, oh, you ain't white. Uh, you're a pretty color now. You're a real pretty color, but I don't know what you are. And uh, so I'd run around in the summertime in my grandfather's cotton fields, you know, with my little red Superman cape on. I always thought I could fly. And I loved Superman. I loved anything that could fly. You'll understand why in just a second. And uh, no shirt, no shoes, just a little cut off red shorts. And before this incident happened that I'm about to tell you, uh, I thought my dad was the biggest giant in the land. Everybody wants to be just like the daddy. I wanted to be strong like him. And everybody who ever saw me, the first words out of their mouth was, uh, you must be so proud to be the firstborn son of the finest man who has ever lived in Madison County, Alabama. And, uh, and of course... You know, I would look up at him like, yeah, I want to be big like him someday. And to me, he was just this giant oak tree. He was just huge. He wasn't that big of a guy, but, you know, he was younger then, and he worked hard. So he had the the muscles in the arms that I wanted to get. Everybody just wants to be like their dad. And on this Saturday afternoon, I was sitting at the base of the table saw, catching little blocks that would come off and building my castles to the sky, daydreaming as I often did. Uh, back, Back until this event... And I tell you, uh, I'm 60 and there are moments when I miss that little guy. Uh, he, was, he was a happy little kid. Uh, always, <laughs> if there was an accusation against me before that moment, it was always that I would talk too much or I just was always laughing and playing. And uh, I don't remember, I, I couldn't even tell you what caused it. I didn't know my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, He kept that well hid. He had a wonderful reputation in the community. He could drink a fifth whiskey, walk a straight line. You'd never know my dad was drinking. If he had a personality, he was drinking. Otherwise, he would blend in with the woodwork, shy, humble, didn't want you to even know he was in the room. I didn't know that at five years old. I didn't know a lot of things, but I was about to learn. 
from out of nowhere that day, my dad took his fist and he hit me in the side of the face and I, I went sliding across that concrete floor. I had no shirt, no shoes, just my little cut off red shorts and the sweat and the sawdust and the pain I can't even describe to you, but the shock of it. And I can tell you distinctly what was in my mind because I slid, my head hit a cabinet over in the corner where my dad stored his pornography. Back in those days in the late 50s, it was his reel-to-reel 8-millimeter films, his magazines, his Polaroid pictures of himself and various people. I'd already found those at five. Way more than a child should see and know. I wasn't thinking about any of that. All I was thinking was, if I can figure out what's wrong with me, and if I can get it right, then maybe my daddy will love me. That's what I was thinking. And you know, I've seen that same thing across the family of God for years and years and years. Everywhere I go, if you want to know what would be the one thing that I face the most is looking into the eyes of precious children, the beloved of God, who think, if I can just get it right... If I can just do a little more, if I can pray a little harder, if I can give a little deeper, if I can serve a little better, maybe my papa will love me. It's the saddest, it is the saddest thing I've ever encountered because I know what it feels like. Boy, do I know what it feels like. And my dad had a petition wall down that, down that uh, workshop that he hadn't finished. It was just bare studs. And so before the afternoon was finished, my dad... Before I could even get to my feet, he was already on me. He was spitting, yelling, cursing. I'll never forget his words. I heard them many times across my childhood. You're nothing and you'll never be anything. I regret the day you were born. It's horrible words. I have grandchildren. Do you know I've taken account of all three of my boys when they turned five? sized them up and looked at them because in my mind as a grown man I was this at five you don't get to somehow you lose the transition in your mind you don't see yourself the same so I would always look at my kids and and when they turned five and I would look at those boys and they were so small especially our youngest who's short anyway he's small he was just this big at five you know he's this big now but (laughs) y'all tell Jared I said that and and all my grandchildren when they turn five especially my oldest grandson who's about to be eight Jackson looks like me and he's colored like me and he's somewhat like me in a lot of ways uh, and it just reminded me of how precious they are And how tragic that day really was. And for me, though, it got so much worse when my dad tied my hands to that stud wall and he stripped me of the remainder of my clothing. And and when my dad had finished raping me in that workshop on that Saturday afternoon, I remember looking down and realizing that I'm, I'm standing in a pool of my own blood. I'll never forget my dad threw a bunch of shop rags at me and said, clean up the mess. Clean up the mess you made before somebody finds it. And then he got down on his knee during the process and he looked me eye to eye. The most evil look I think I've ever seen. And for the first time I could distinctly recognize the smell of the alcohol on his breath. It was something I didn't quite know or understand. And he said, you ever breathe a word of this to anybody and I'll bury you on this property and they won't find you for years. I knew it was true. There's just something inside of me knew it was true. Well, it was getting close to supper time. Mom always had the supper at a certain time and daddy required it. And he made sure that I knew that The switch is being flipped and all is going back to normal when we go inside. So the reason I titled my book Masquerade is actually in those few seconds was the very first crude little mask I formed so that everybody would find me acceptable. You'll love me. You'll like me. You'll never know how bloody and broken I am. You'll never know 
that I'm worthless. You'll never know that my own father hates me. And so across those years, that's what I began to do. I began to be somebody else. I started playing keys when I was six years old. I know I'm 60 and, you know, after 54 years, you'd think I'd be better at it than I am. But, hey, I got other things that take up my time. (laughs) I'm doing the best I can. And uh, so I started playing by ear. I don't read any music, and I'm sure I didn't have to tell you all that either. And, uh, and my uncle took me to church when I was little. He was the only Christian in our family, married to my dad's oldest sister. And he loved music, and they recognized I w- had a gift, was starting to teach myself to play. If I heard something, I would go home, and I could mimic it. It wouldn't be exactly like it. It would be my version of it. But if I could hear it, I could find it, and I would eventually play it. Uh, I think my first song, oh, y'all going to be so impressed with this. Let me give it to you. Uh, My first song was, I think it was, I can read, I can write, I can smoke my pappy's pipe, uh, something like that. Uh, Oh, I thought it was a superstar. Listen, and then it got better and I would do the old Southern gospel songs, you know, the old, uh, let's see, what, uh, oh, here's some slamming, you know, the old... all that stuff so uh uh my I got to play for the youth choir and they would take me to church and then I ended up in a few little local gospel groups they wanted me to play piano for them and boy the highlight is then when I uh would get invited to some place where the Happy Goodman family was and Vestal had heard me play and she'd say well Danny's here he can he knows this come up here and play it and all thought it died and gone to heaven uh But I made sure the mask was on. Every little country church I went in, every singing where I'd walk down the aisle, and I'd I'd hear the little ladies in the back, you know, when I'd come in about 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, and I'm ready to play, and I walk in, the place is packed. Y'all been to Southern Gospel Singings, right? Uh Uh-huh. And some of them I went, you know, there was different versions. There was a kind that the singing Rambos went to where it was more shake your hairpins down, you know, fall out the window. And then there was the kind that the other groups went to and they were a little more straight laced. But I had a mask for all of them. I fit in wherever I went. Uh, And I'd go down the aisle and some little lady would go, uh, uh, that's him right there, Myrtle. That's that kid I was telling you about. He's good. That boy's good. And I thought, you dang right I'm good. Let me tell you. For a moment, I was somebody. For just a moment, I'm somebody. And uh, that, became my, that became my life. Just, just hold it together. Stay a couple of steps ahead of a predator who is constantly on your heels. See, from five to ten years old, my dad had sold me to more old men than I could count. They would pay my dad for a little fun with the firstborn son of the finest man who'd ever lived in Alabama. Never forget one Friday afternoon. I was about nine or ten years old. My dad took me out to an old field on a Friday afternoon. An old farmer-looking guy was propped up in front of his pickup truck and his bib overalls, and he was waiting. When we pulled up, I knew where we were going. By then, I'd gotten numb to it all. Uh, I knew what was required. And in the best way that I can describe, I guess on some level, I just tried to be good enough at it to not be beaten to death. When we got out of the truck, man looked me over, skinny little thing, and uh, daddy said, he knows what he's doing. Man reached over in the bed of the truck and he pulled out a basket of tomatoes and he handed it to my dad as payment. And he pulled a $5 bill out of his pocket and handed it to dad, was going to hand it to him. My dad stuck up his hand, good, humble, hardworking, do two days work for half a day's pay. Oh, you keep that five. That is way too much. The enemy is such a liar. He works early and he works hard to establish in you that you're nothing. You'll never be anything. But it's all a lie and it's all an illusion. See, he was working so hard that day to plant a seed in me of Danny Wallace, your dad hates you. You're not even worth the extra $5. Just a basket of tomatoes to spend an entire weekend with a greasy old man 
that you've never met before. To have his way with a firstborn son, the finest man who's ever lived. And so that was my life. That was my life. Uh, By the time I met Lynn, I met her at 14 years old. I was actually playing piano at some folks' house. And uh, she lived... She lived on the good side of the highway. I lived on the bad side. Uh, We were born in the same hospital, delivered by the same doctor, six weeks apart. Uh, Shall I tell them you're six weeks older than me? Uh, Listen, when last year when we turned 60 and uh, she turned 60 in November and I had six weeks to go and I was still in my youthful 50s, we had some fun with that. Lynn didn't think it was so funny, but uh, <laughs> I thought, hang on while you can, boy, because you're about to slide in home right there with her. And uh, when I met her, she walked in the door, and I thought, oh, my, what a princess. And she didn't want anything to do with me. I was this nerdy, little skinny, gospel music, piano-playing little dude. I had black glasses, and uh, I dyed my hair blue-black like Elvis, uh, I'm using a different shade now, and uh, they, <laughs> uh, I've softened it a bit, but not to its natural color. Uh, some, uh, some pastor asked me not long ago, he said, you're, you're 60 years old? He said, you don't have any gray hair? I said, get real, I mean, but as long as Walmart sells that stuff, and I can still crawl up to the counter... <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) So uh, we met at 14. Make a long story short, I chased her through a few cemeteries at a few funerals. And finally, I don't know what I did to win her over, but uh, we married at 17. We were almost 18. Uh, We married in October, and we turned 18 in November and December. So close enough. As if that makes a dime's worth of difference, right? Uh, when all of my boys turned 17, I looked them over a couple of times and thought, don't you even think about it. When we married at 17, eight months later, our oldest son, Sean, that one that I told you is the, the lead graphic designer for Charles Stanley, who is such a blessing to our life and my ministry, the little boy that I prayed for, I wanted a, I wanted a son. When I found out Lynn was pregnant, everybody was in a catastrophe. Looking back, I can see why. I mean, we were 17 years old. And, and listen, hey, I'm not justifying any of this. I'm not propping it up. I'm telling you what happened, okay? You make of it what you will. Let the Holy Spirit discern in you what it means to you. And if, uh, if you decide I'm unworthy for any portion of my story, trust me, it is my honor to love you. So don't worry about it. And uh, I remember praying, God, I want a little boy. And if he could be olive-complected, that would be neat. And maybe have dark hair. Oh, and if he could sing, oh, that would be so neat. And uh, so when Sean was born, he had the most beautiful skin you've ever seen. Oh, everybody talked about it. Everybody wanted to rub it because he was just so soft, even all the way up into his teens. And we had this one lady at church, oh, let me rub Sean boys. Oh, he's so soft. And uh, he he was so olive-complected. And his bald head is an onion. I wasn't sure about the color part yet. So then when his hair came in, sure enough, his hair was my color. As he got about... 10, 11, 12, 13 in there, he, he, he would design his own CD covers. He was already a great artist by that time, and he loved music. And had, We lived in a double-wide trailer at that time, and the walls were thin, and the plumbing was bad. And we would, uh, he would get in his bedroom, and he would get soundtracks, and he would sing to the top of his lungs. I remember one day, Lynn and I were standing at the kitchen sink. It sounded like you were slaughtering a goat in his bedroom when he was singing. And I said, well, Lord, two out of three ain't bad. And uh, now the dude sings back up for major artists and uh, leads worship for Jensen Franklin. Listen, he's forgotten more about singing than I'll ever know. And uh, so God is so gracious and he is so good. See, God, God doesn't major in dirt. And believe it or not, God does not major in true. See, at any point in my life, there was a lot of things that were momentarily true. 
there was a time when I was nothing but a common teenage whore. Maybe not at my own choosing. Maybe it was pawned off on me. But at some point it became who I was. And I was certainly a liar extraordinaire because when you masquerade that long, it's just a natural process. You just become a liar to survive. I didn't know a lie from a truth. I wrote in masquerade that the dumbest thing I ever did in my life was create my masquerade, cast my drama, cast my characters, feed you the script unknown to you, and then buy a ticket and kick back in the front row and watch it as if it were true. That's the dumb part. Since I created it all myself. And so when Lynn and I married at 17, by 19 years old, we moved to North Carolina and uh, we lived in, uh, outside of Fayetteville, North Carolina for a while. I worked at a textile plant and I, uh, I felt a call into the ministry at 19 years old. Now, hey, that's really going to stretch your theology. If y'all have got any religion left in you, it's fixing to bubble up. Y'all fixing to pull the stuffing right out of them seats and you won't even use your hands to do it. It is, uh, it's going to get tight if you got any religion because I've said that before in churches and I can see people thinking I don't know who called you boy but the Lord didn't call you because you see by that time by the time I got to puberty I had one foot in the homosexual world one foot in the heterosexual world I didn't know how I got there I didn't know how in the world to get out the only thing I knew was if I showed up at any church where I was called on to sing and be the little gospel music superstar you don't want to take the mask off that reveals that part of the story they don't want to know they just be content for me to just be who they can love and accept. And I was careful to do it. Careful to do it. So even by the time the Lord called me into ministry at 19 years old, I was that same kid. I loved him so desperately. See, I'd gotten saved at 11 years old. I knew the Lord. Uh, man, of all the things I'd been through... My dad used to, he used to throw me in the pig pen and, and tie my ankle to the hog house. And he had thrown my supper out because maybe I spoke up when I wasn't supposed to. In my dad's world, kids were to be seen and not heard. So I'd eaten many meals with the pigs growing up when I was 10 years old on Christmas Eve night. My dad beat me within an inch of my life that Christmas Eve. He stripped me completely naked, tied my hands and feet together, my hands behind my back, tied my ankles together, and he put me in an old chest freezer out in his garage that no longer worked. It had a hole drill near the bottom where if you got close to it, you could breathe. And that's where the firstborn son of the finest man who ever lived in Madison County spent Christmas Eve. But I was a dreamer. When they closed the lid of that freezer, I remember dreaming, my dad is a king and I'm a prince. And in the morning he'll open this lid and he'll be so sorry for what he's done. And he'll put a robe around me and a ring on my finger and he's going to ask me to forgive him. And Well, the lid did finally open, but none of that happened. And so, you know... At 11, my, my uncle had asked me to go play at a, a little country church revival because the piano player got sick that week and the pastor knew I could play. I went uh, to this little country church. It wasn't near this nice or big. I mean, you, it'd be half this size, if that. Old wooden floors, rickety pews, dust all over them. If you weighed over 150 pounds, you better test drive that pew before you sat in it because they were, and, uh, you know, I mean, it was old-timey. And, but boy, it was my time to be in the sunshine. I, they called on me specially to do this music, and I tore it up. And uh, after I finished, I went and sat down a few rows back and sat by my aunt and uncle. And I'm, I was about ready to check out because they ain't going to need me again until the invitation. And I've done enough of these. I can kind of tell by how it's going when that's coming, you know. And the old man that walked to the pulpit, uh, I'd heard him preach before, and honest to goodness, that dude didn't have but one throttle. Have y'all ever heard guys like that up here in Rowan County? I'm sure you have. Uh, but back in my day, they were plentiful. His, the only style he had was, Praise God! And somebody'd say, Bless him, Jesus! 
I thought he could be calling you every name under the sun. You don't know what he said. I'm I'm a kid. I can hear better than you folks, and I don't know what he said. I I never could get, what are y'all praising Jesus about? I'm not sure he knows what he's saying. So I was about to tune out. I thought, Lord, I've heard him before. I know what's coming. You don't think our Papa holds our destiny precious and fragile and safe in the palm of his loving hands. He does. He does. Because on that night, everybody in that church knew my daddy. That old man probably knew him. He certainly knew me. He'd heard me play many times. He thought I was the privileged, firstborn, talented son of the hardest working, finest man that ever lived in that county. And he walked to the pulpit. I'm told nobody had ever heard him do it before. I was told by many people we never heard him do it again. Oh, he would always preach an hour and a half, and that was just his introduction. And uh, trust me, I won't do that. I'm on your timer. And uh, he walked to that pulpit, and he spoke about like this. And he laid his Bible on the pulpit, and he said, If I had a topic for my sermon tonight, it would be, Would you like to know a father who loves you? Oh, he had me from jump. I was about to tune out, but boy, I was back front and center, glued to every word. And in his way, in his own terminology, he told me about a papa who adores me. That every time I walk into the room, he stops all of heaven and calls Gabriel and the angels over and says, Come look at my boy. Come look at my boy. How beautiful, how precious is my beloved. He could not have known how desperately I needed to hear that and how hard it was to believe it. Surely God knows who I am. Surely He knows what I have done. Surely He knows what has happened to me behind closed doors. Now I know in my spirit that if I could have heard it that clearly then, God was smiling and saying, oh yes, I've heard the enemy's moment of true, but I'm not governed by it. Now let me give you my eternal word and promise that is truth. You are not who your enemy says you are. You are not who your peers think you are. On most days, Danny, you're not even who you believe you are. You are who I, the Lord God himself, say that you are. And I say you are wonderfully made. Wonderfully made. I love you. I always have. I adore you. That preacher only preached about 15 minutes. And I could sense the invitation coming in. And as it probably is today, we're about to have one shortly. And already there are many people in this room that in many ways, unknown to me, God is working with you. In ways that I probably couldn't imagine. It was destined to be. Just as surely as I was supposed to be sitting in that old country church that day. This is a moment in history that will never repeat itself. I'll never be in this room again with these people. In this moment. These these people. Could I tell you in all sincerity that there's nothing special about me? Nothing at all. Except that God would love me so much to let me live through so many circumstances to have the honor to be here. And share even a portion of my story with you. Because He loves you that desperately as hard as the enemy tried to prevent this day from the time I was very young to even in a few days past of how hard the enemy did not want this to happen I praise God for people who are genuine who are anointed and who see what God sees They don't see what religion sees. They don't see what peer pressure sees. They just 
are sensitive to, I want to see what God sees. When he gave that invitation, he said, if you would like to know a father who loves you, step out. I stepped out. I ran to that altar and I cried a river. The old man prayed beside me and said, would you love to know this papa who loves you? And I said, oh, if there is a papa who loves me, you better believe I want to know him. And that was so, so amazing, especially when you consider that for the entire year prior to that, I had not shed a tear. Not one. Not through all the beatings, not through the rape, not through the cursing, not through the meals with the pigs, not in the freezer. Because you see, my dad had taken me out to an old barn when I was 10 to help him load some wood that a man had given him that if he'd load it, he could have it for free. Dumb me thought I'd earn some money to buy my Superman comics. So I jump in the truck, I go, it's dusky dark. A year prior to this wonderful day of meeting my papa, I had stood in the center of an old barn vowing never to cry because you see when we pulled up and it's getting dusky dark and I jumped out the doors to run in that barn, uh, I realized there was no wood in that barn. Just a stained and filthy mattress lying on the center of the dirt floor of the barn. Before I could turn and run, I realized I was being surrounded by about 16 big, strong country. I'm not talking about head to the gay pride parade like you would imagine, folks. I'm talking about hardworking guys just like average guys sitting in here, strong, supposedly straight, supposedly just as hardworking and respected as my dad. Some of them I'd seen in a couple of gospel singings, by the way who paid my dad to have some fun with the kid. And on that afternoon in that barn, when all 16 of them had had their particular way, whatever that was, again, that mattress was stained with my blood. I'll tell you, though, that by then I'd grown numb. It's like a prisoner of war. You learn to deal with the pain. You just understand it's your cards that have been dealt. And you, you just live. You're, you're, you're too interested in staying alive to concentrate on what's actually happening. Here's what was hard to ever be healed in me. This right here. My dad was sitting in an old cane bottom chair kind of over in the shadows of the barn. And in the middle of this whole process, one of those old men said, what are we going to do with him if we kill him? My dad didn't miss a beat. He said, we're going to get rid of him. Now, all my childhood, I would go to bed praying every night. I'd hear preaching. I'd go to those gospel singings. I'd hear about God the Father. I would hear there's a God who loves you. I'd hear all these messages. And I would go home and pray a couple of prayers. One of them was, help me to fix what's wrong with me because if I can find out what's wrong with me and I can fix it then my daddy will love me again and side by side with that prayer I always went to bed closing with this one if there is a God in heaven don't let me wake up inside the four walls of the finest man who has ever lived in Madison County let me fly let me be Superman Take me far, far away. I used to pray, Lord, let me stretch out in a cool meadow inside jasper walls, inside your pearly gates, and let me count angels flying overhead. If there's a God, and if you love me, surely you will. And every morning, like clockwork, this little kid was awake, and my dad was standing over me. So I I got dressed that day in that barn, 10 years old, and I remember wiping away the tears, and there was a resolve that came in with me. You want to know what abused children think? I'll tell you what they think. To hell with all of you. I don't care if you like me or not. They reach a breaking point to where I don't care if you accept me. I don't care if you like me. And the worst of life begins to play out in them in so many ways. People who've been forced into silence and have no safe place in which to unwrap their heart, it happens over and over again. And that's who I became, black of heart. And uh, so when a year later of holding to that pledge of not crying, 
I poured that river of tears out in that altar. How precious is our Papa to take us full circle to the pinnacle of his promise. I'd love to tell you that everything got better. It didn't. The abuse got worse. My dad hated the fact that I'd accepted the Lord. But guess what? He couldn't do anything about it because his oldest sister who thought he was the finest man who'd ever lived is the one that took me to church and he couldn't deny me going without betraying who he was to his sister God is so cool he knows just what he's doing so when Lynn and I married and I went in the ministry we're going across those years I tell you what uh, part of it was treacherous unknown to this beautiful lady she had married a troubled boy I loved her. I loved my sons. All of them. I tell you, I adore the ground they walk on. I will adore them until the day I leave this earth. And every day I have a new prayer. Oh, Papa, if you grant me nothing else, grant me this. May my children and my grandchildren live long beyond my days on this earth. Please. Let them live long and fruitful. Take me anytime, anytime, but let them stay. They are the light and the joy of my life. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask Pastor Don something because I am going to stay with the time. I actually sense that the Holy Spirit is wanting to do something really quickly here. And you don't have to grant it. I'm going to ask you that sometime in the near future, you have me back. You don't have to take an offer. You don't have to do anything. Let me come of my own accord and uh, just spend the time focusing on nothing for you guys but the portion of my story that deals with homosexuality. Of where I was, how I got there, how I got out. Everything that was involved in it because it's too complex to gloss. I believe it will help you because I sense in my spirit that you're a people who care. And you're a people that can make a difference where others give lip service. And they want to. But it's just too difficult. And I just don't want to be seen in that element. And I don't want to be tied to it. These people need you. They need you desperately. They need your love. They need your insight that only the Holy Spirit can give. Because you see, uh, through most of my life, as the Lord began to prosper the ministry, uh, like... I, I was in Southern Gospel Music for years, used to travel with the Imperials, Andrus Blackwood Company, people like that back in the day. I recorded for Brentwood Records in the 80s. Uh, I went into youth pastor work, things like that, and uh, in the late 90s, uh, began my own ministry of actually sharing my life story, actually prior to my, uh, what I'm about to share with you is that... Uh, in the late 90s, I traveled with a good friend of mine, Lulu Roman, who was on Hee Haw for many years. And we've been friends for about 20 plus years. And she and I would share our stories and our music. And uh, I would share basically what I've shared with you today. Maybe in a different vein, but the Holy Spirit always goes in, a, in his own way. And uh, I had the comment by the tail. I thought, Lord, this is a life I have always dreamed of. Everything is good. I'm blessed. My children are healthy. My grandchildren are healthy. You have done far and above what I ever deserved. You are so good and you are so great. And in 2003, I was having trouble breathing. And to give you the quick story of that, thought I had bronchitis, didn't have hospital insurance. I'm like most guys. I don't like needles. I don't like doctors. I don't like any of that. Uh, I self-diagnosed myself, thought I had bronchitis, couldn't breathe, but I couldn't do anything. I could walk three feet and it was, I, I just could not get a breath beyond here. I went to a little dock in the box around the corner from us, paid 180 bucks, I believe it was, that I did not have. And a little doctor comes out after he's read my blood test and my x-rays and he had a mask on and his eyes were about this big and he goes, so what's up? I thought, dude, I just paid you $180. If you're asking me what's up, we're in trouble. And uh, he said, uh, let me ask you one question. Have you ever been asked a question that you know and you know her what that second one's going to be? His first question was, have you ever been an intravenous drug user? I said, no, sir. He said, ever been involved in 
same-sex relations? I said, yes, sir. He said, here's what I think. And he showed me my x-ray. It looked like this keyboard. It was as black from corner to corner to corner. He said, I believe you have PCP pneumonia, pneumocystic pneumonia that's exclusive to HIV patients. I could be wrong. You're above my pay grade. He said, from the test we've run, I have no idea how you walked in here. No idea whatsoever. He said, you need to go to the emergency room. Do not pass go. Don't collect $200. I thought, I need to collect $200 because I ain't got no hospital insurance. He referred me to a place that would take me, sent me straight over there. I was to go. And uh, when I got to the hospital, my wife was there. My sons were there. And we're a team on everything. Listen, when they... Uh, took me back, did that first x-ray. There were people running in and out of that room like rats off of a sinking ship. Sure enough, not only was I HIV positive, I had full-blown AIDS. Which also, if I should come back, let me tell you the wonder of that. But as I bring you into an invitation today, I just got to tell you that the emergency room doctor went out and talked with my family and then they she came back in and she said, Is your, does your family understand exactly the gravity? And I said, uh, uh, do they understand that I'm HIV positive? You think that? And that, that you said AIDS? And she said, yes. I said, we discussed that before we came. She said, oh, because they seem awfully calm. I said, yeah, they probably are. I was calm. They checked me into the hospital, hooked me up to every IV. They were pumping me full of drugs, trying to turn the pneumonia around. My T-cells, which measure your immune system, were below 80. By the way, they're about 800 now and uh, have been across the last 12 years. They are, uh, anything below 200 is full-blown AIDS. Mine were below 80. Uh, your viral load, which measures how many times the virus has replicated itself in each millimeter of blood, zero is positive, I mean negative, and mine had replicated greater than 750,000 times per millimeter. That's as high as they could measure at that time. Could have been 10 million, could have been 750,000 or one. And uh, when they checked me in, I'm glad they didn't tell me then, but they did tell me later, uh, we believed we were going to make you comfortable and that there was no way you were going to survive that. Five days later, I walked out of that hospital. On opening night of my visit there, let me tell you something. If y'all got a sick cat, call in. She'll bake a casserole. Come sit up with you and the cat. She'll drive the four and a half hours from Atlanta just to do it. It's, it's a mercy thing she's got. She just does it. Uh, and I thought I'd have to run her out of that hospital. I wanted to talk to Papa for a couple of minutes because seeing that altar at 11 years old, I'll never forget what the Lord whispered to me after that old man prayed with me. The Lord said, Danny, you finally met a Papa who will never leave you or forsake you. Wherever you go, highest mountain, lowest valley, I'll be there. He didn't say it in these words, but after all the years have passed, you might as well have. Uh, your story can go around the world via TBN, CBN. Uh, they can call you international speaker and all these wonderful terms. Or your greatest critic can call you nothing but a liar. Wherever you go, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I needed to talk to Papa. I'd heard the diagnosis. So I asked Lynn, would she go home? And she, I said, I'll be fine. You boys go home. Well, everybody went home. Almost hurt my feelings. They agreed so fast. <laughs> Lynn said it was the best night's sleep she'd ever had. I really had to pray about that one. No, I'm kidding. If they had in the morning left the room, it was already getting dark and I began to pray. I, I think it, I believe it was some of my finest work or I did at the time. I said, uh, Papa, I've done everything you asked me to do. I forgave my dad long ago. I cut that ball and chain loose. Across these years, I have blessed him in the name of Jesus. Never curse him. I speak well of him. I do not speak evil of him. He is your treasure, and I know it. 
I love all people without any condition. They love me back. I forgive my enemies. It is my honor to love them, to love all of you. I said, I've told my story everywhere you would open the door. I reminded him of a night in Crossville, Tennessee, when in a church that was as long as is past that door coming in out yonder. I mean, one of them shotgun Baptist churches that seat about a thousand people and you got to walk a day and a half from the back to get to the altar. That's why everybody sits at the back. So they have an excuse for not going to the altar. Anyway, I shared my story there. Place was packed. There was about 400 people in the altar that night weeping and crying. I'm telling you, they were serious about unwrapping their heart in front of this loving Papa that I kept telling them about. And a little 85-year-old woman, I'll never forget her, had a smile that would light up the room, beautiful white hair, beautiful blue eyes, used a walker to walk all the way from the back, took her what seemed like forever, smiling and crying all the way. I reminded Papa of how hard she squeezed me. I was certain she had collapsed one of my lungs. And, and she called me boy, so I loved her immediately. She said, boy, young man, I just had to come and hug you and thank you for your courage, for sharing your story. She said, you see, when I was five years old, my daddy raped me. And she said, for 80 years, I have never spoken of it. I've never whispered a word to a living soul. She said tonight, because of your courage at the back of the room, I know what forgiveness feels like. I know what freedom feels like because long gone and long dead is my father. I I told him that I blessed him. I told him that I love him. I told him that I forgive him. And I released it from my heart. She said, I just had to come and tell you. And when she said these words, I just never forget. She said, I finally know what it is to be free. Oh my goodness. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. So I said, Papa, I can't die up in here. You need me. That's about what it sounded like coming back from him. Little chuckle. And he put his arm around me in the spirit. It's, it, I could just feel his love and his understanding. And he said, well, Danny, your theology's close, but it's just the hair off. And uh, if you'll drag your IV bottle and your oxygen tube and slide your little skinny frail self over here in the window, sit down on this air conditioning unit here, I'll help you with it. And I looked out, there must have been a million stars in the sky that night in in Atlanta, Georgia. And he said, when I hung the first star in the sky and the billions thereafter, trust me, Danny, when I tell you, I did not need you whatsoever to make it happen. And if you'll come over here in the morning and watch that sun come over the horizon the way it's done thousands of times before, and it will do thousands of times again, long after I finally answer your little boy's prayer and let you stretch out in my cool meadow inside my jasper walls and count those angels that have been waiting on you a long time, son. Trust me when I tell you, I don't need you whatsoever to make that sun come up. I said, oh, Papa, I'm sorry. I didn't, I, I didn't mean that. He said, oh, I know you better than you know yourself. Forget about it. I know you didn't mean it that way. And y'all in the spirit, literally as clearly as I can see you, Don, I saw the face of my papa. Brightest smile, beautiful eyes, tears streaming down his face as he said, but this is the truth. If I were to search the world over and I could not find your face, the tears that would fall to heaven's floor would be mine because I love you that desperately. I always have. So wherever you go, there are plenty of people out there, son, who will fill the air with curses. There are plenty of people out there that will point at moments of truth. Wherever I open the door for you to go, promise me this, that you will tell my people how precious they are. Desperately, I love them. How much I know that they've hidden so deeply.
because they feel it's not safe to unwrap. You know what I sense in my spirit? I sense in my spirit that this morning, in this place of all places I've ever been, this is a safe place for you to unwrap your heart. To our Papa, he's here this morning. Jeremy, would you come up just a minute because I want you to play. Uh, Would y'all stand with me across the room? Papa, in the name of Jesus, I praise you and I thank you. I thank you for your goodness. I bless you. In all that you do and all that you say. In the humble love of your sacrifice. You've made such a marvelous way. Such a marvelous way. So I hear you, Lord. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you right now in the spirit and I'll repeat it word for word. Papa says to you, you are the treasure of his kingdom. You're not going to be the treasure. Not could be the treasure if, when, or but. He says to you, this is my word and as such, It remains forever beyond contestation. You are who I say you are. And you are my beloved. So all of those moments of true that some of you are trapped in, Papa says to you this morning, there's one thing for certain. It is not the eternal truth that I have sacrificed everything to make alive in you. So listen to me across this room this morning. Whatever is going on with you, whatever you're going through, the Lord is here. In the strangest way you've probably ever witnessed it, this is Miracle Sunday if you've ever seen it. In these next next 15 or 20 minutes or so, you would be amazed at what the God who spoke forever into existence can do just that quickly. If you want to know who the most unworthy man is in the room, don't even take a vote. You're looking at him. If you want to know who the most grateful man is in the room, I tell you, it's going to be a close room close race to overtake me in that I love my papa I love his deep and abiding love for all of us I love the miracle of his gift of Jesus I love that even when we get it out get in the way he doesn't just shove us aside he just gently whispers give me just a minute and then he moves in And then everything begins to change. You know when that adulterous woman was thrown at the feet of Jesus? Uh, I told Lynn just about this other day. I talk about it all the time. There's so many truths in that. I said, uh, you know, Jesus being human and God, can you imagine what the human side of his thoughts were at first when those old boys brought her in there and said, Moses says that if you're found guilty of adultery, to be stoned to death what do you say can you imagine what first ran through his mind thank goodness it didn't come out we could learn from that to just let it run through our mind a few minutes and don't let it come out I bet he thought who do you clowns think you are who do you think you are you don't think that I who put the galaxies in the air know everything about you Are you for real? But he didn't do that. Jesus, true to his word, I came not into the world to condemn the world, but to set the world free. He spoke no condemnation over the men that brought this woman, and likewise he spoke none over her. You know what he did? And it's what we need to do often. He stooped to scribble in the dust. I've heard many uh, arrogant preachers say, well, I day what he was doing he's probably writing their names down there and listing their sins for them really the God who came not to condemn is so sneaky 
as to write their sins in the dust. I believe he's a great orator. He could tell them what they are if that was his mission. I believe he was doodling and waiting on the Holy Spirit of God to whisper to his heart. I believe he was praying in his spirit, Papa, I know what I'd like to tell them. What would you like from to hear? What wise words. Papa wanted them to hear this. It's, hey, what do you want me to say? The law's the law. You found in adultery, you're to be stoned to death. I mean, I didn't come to undo that and argue with that. So here's what we'll do. None of you have any sin? Go ahead and grab your rock, stone her to death. You don't have any. But if he didn't say this, he didn't tell them they couldn't. But the implication was, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit reminded them of it, is if you have sin, then you might consider how qualified you are. Scripture says that their conscience judged them unworthy. We know what that was. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit just come in and said, guys, really? Said the old men dropped their stones first. Well, I tell you what, I'm old, so I know why that is. I've lived long enough to know I don't qualify it anyway whatsoever. And the young guys followed suit. And all was made precious on that day. There's something miraculous that happens when somebody makes the calculated cunning mistake of tossing us at the feet of Jesus wow I don't know what all they had up their sleeve but it worked out completely different than they thought how does evil stand against the power of blessing and not a curse How does evil stand against the power of unconditional love that says you're released from even liking me? It is my honor to love you. How does evil compete with I rush to forgive and I begin with the one who deserves it the least? There's some of you today in this room The Lord has already spoken your heart. You're about like Oprah Winfrey said one day. I heard Oprah Winfrey say when I was a little bitty poor black girl being raped by my uncle, I knew in my spirit that I was destined for great things. I knew it. There are some of you in this room that have always known. I I can't explain it. But God has a destiny for me that is beyond where I'm currently standing. And you believe you've got to do something. You believe you've got to get better. You've got to overcome more. No, the Lord brought me here today as a living example to tell you that if you will get out of the way, if you will trust what I have already done, if you will step into it, I will release you on wings of grace that will take you to a destiny you never dreamed or imagined. So right now, whatever your need is in this room, I don't care what it is. I'm not going to bother to list a thousand of them hoping I'll hit yours. The Holy Spirit's better at that than I am. Whatever you need, I will assure you of this. When your feet hit the aisle long before you ever get here, it is done in Jesus' name. If it's healing, if it's a financial disaster, if your marriage is that close to exploding, if your diagnosis makes AIDS pale by comparison, I don't care what it is. My Papa does not fail. The promise maker is indeed the promise keeper. So whatever it is, y'all come right now. We're going to pray.
I'm so worthy. 
You've been listening to Destiny City, a community of believers committed to helping others find and fulfill their God-given destiny. For more information, visit us online at destinycity.org.